0: Masterclass series. And we're going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 through 34. And I'm going to be reading verses 23 through 26. So if you want to read along with me, you can do so. And it says this For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you pray with me? Father, I am grateful as we get to gather, as we get to worship and celebrate you and just the family that we get to be together. God, I pray that this morning that we just continue to hear you. We see you at work through each person in this room. Maybe it's a conversation, a song, a teaching, a message. God, you are here, you are alive, and you are at work. I pray that we are able to hear you and see you this morning. And God, that we're just able to be thankful and to worship you as we gather together. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
1: Welcome. Welcome back to Master Class. Paul's goal in writing the letter to the Corinthians is to help them filter all of life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so this Master Class is really us not saying... That I'm the expert, and this is how you are supposed to or must live life. But to really be a guide and point you to the Apostle Paul and his words and his application of saying, listen, as we look at divisions in the church, as we look at marriage, as we look at politics, as we look at gender, as we look at the gathering and gifting of the church, as we look at the hope that we have in the resurrection, the restored and renewed humanity, how does that affect? our everyday life, and also how do we become so rooted, so shaped by the love and grace of Jesus that as that shows up in our life, that those around us look at us and look at our life and go, they are followers of Jesus. And in fact, that's what Paul's vision for this church is to be, is the Corinthians were to be the alternative to Corinth in Corinth. They were to be that city on a hill. They were to be God's restored humanity in the midst of when they find themselves. They were to be an alternative community within the community. And Jesus is the person that helps us experience new humanity, new family, and a renewed mission. And it's challenging for us, at times, to—I was just talking with a brother, probably a couple minutes before I stepped up here and said—it's—it's it's easy to to kind of have belief or knowledge, and you kind of take things as it is. It's another thing for you to own it, to internalize it, for you to not just take it because that's what you've been taught, or that's what you're supposed to do, or because it's a good or right thing to do, but to take it and to say, no, I'm choosing to follow Jesus in every aspect of my life, even when it's difficult, even when it's confusing, not because that's what's been told that I should do, but because God so loved me that it has shaped my heart and I can't help but respond. And Paul wants the Corinthians to grasp this reality and display this, not just when they show up on a Sunday, but when they live with others, when they show up to work Monday through Friday, but also when they gather together, see there to be that renewed and restored humanity together. Jump ahead with me to our context for a moment. If someone was to walk into a church gathering, us doing this together, and then let's say they would walk into another club or association or a birthday party, There is to be something fundamentally different between our intentional gathering of the church in this moment and other fun or civic entities. Those entities aren't bad. They often serve good purposes. They serve to build community and can often have good mission and motive. And we should celebrate that and we should affirm that. But simultaneously, there is something to be fundamentally different between a Lions Club and what we know as the church. I remember a few years back before Facebook became meta and Mark Zuckerberg made this big long speech about how communal and civic organizations were declining across the West and he lumped in with the church every other organization. And now I'm not here to debate whether or not he was doing it passive-aggressively or he had ulterior motives. That's not a thing. But the fact was is that he saw the church stand in line with so many other good social communal organizations and said they're as a whole in decline because they don't serve their purpose anymore. And so I'm not here to debate his motives or anything, but I take it as telling. That many people believe the church's sole purpose is both to provide community and to help people be more moral. And when the church ceases to do this in an individual's perspective, it's time to find a new substitute. Let me be very clear. The church's existence is to be an overlap between heaven and earth, advancing Showing people the tangible love and grace of Jesus wherever they find themselves, where you live, work, and play, to show up and to live God's love in front of people, for people, with God, showing people what it's like to be human because of Jesus. So it's not a social club, All right, come on. it's a hospital. To, be, to recover, to be restored, to experience grace and love, to, to, to be able to have the perspective of bad things may have happened in my life, difficult things, there have been trauma in my life, and to not be defined by that trauma, but to experience a community of people who love you in spite of that and help you recover well. And it's also a training ground where we're equipped to then go live that in the world, to not just stay And recover and be refreshed, which is needed. A safety and oasis and a retreat, but also to be given the tools and resources so that when we step back out into the grind, when we step back into a a difficult and toxic family situation, when we step back and we wonder, how in the world do I help my dear friend, my brother, my sister, navigate unanswered questions where it feels like God is distanced, that we are equipped to be sent out. To love and live well. And love and love well. We say this every week that we are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. Our goal is to expand the family. Therefore, when we gather, we must remind each other of our personal newness in Christ. Our familial bond in Christ and our mission with God in the world. We are not gathered here today because we're all Portland Trailblazers fans. We're not gathered here today because we're Seahawks fans. And you know this, when you think define your affiliations and your allegiance by other things, things can get fickle because how often do sports teams call for new coaches or new quarterbacks or new players? The only thing that sustains us, that sustains our bond, is not something that we can affiliate or that we can see. What sustains our bond is the power of Christ stepping into our life, his love and grace that keeps us going when the going gets tough. So please don't mishear me. While our intent is to help individual people experience the goodness of God's family, the Christian life isn't merely personal or individual. God loves you and has a plan and a purpose for your life. He sees you precisely as you are. You sum totally all of you. He sees you and loves you, but it doesn't stop with you. The good news of Jesus and his love came to you in your life for you, you to experience that love and attachment to Jesus, but also to continue through you to others in your life, to be God's representative collectively, that renewed humanity, in the earth. It is communal life with God, with others, for God, and for others. But there are influences that corrupt our view of community life together. And it's easy to think that the greatest polluter of Christian community is out there. It's somewhere else. It's the adversary Now, believe me, the adversary is real and he wants to subvert and attack and undermine. But sometimes the greatest enemy to Christian community are Christians themselves. Take Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words, pastor and theologian during the beginning of World War II, looking at the church and their place within global conflict. Because we don't have any global conflict right now, do we? But he says, those who love their their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of the Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and themselves, and they enter the community of Christians with their demands, set up by their own law, and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on their way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. And we must confess that he builds, that he moves. We must proclaim he builds. We must pray to him that he will build. We do not know his plan. We cannot see whether he is building or pulling down. It may be the times in which humans, by which human standards are the times of collapse are for him and great times of construction. It may be that the times from which human point are great times for the church are times when it is pulled down. It is great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. You confess, you preach, you bear witness to Jesus. And, I, and Jesus says, and I alone will build where it pleases me. Do not meddle in what is not your providence. Do do what is given to you and do it well. And you have enough and you will have done enough. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins. Forgive each other every day from the bottom of your hearts. To sum it up. We like the idea of supporting each other and loving one another and being for one another way, way more than we like actually showing up and doing it. And we're not alone in this. Put any group of people together, throw in different life experiences, upbringing, personal sin, and there's bound to be difficulty, conflict, frustration, selfishness, pride, unless there is something that holds this group together, that is able to both simultaneously align the people and provide personal change, unless there is a supernatural power, there's there's a power source, there's an attachment that drives people to go beyond the little slights and the passive-aggressive comments and the RBF, to move towards people in such a way that says, you are loved and valued, and I know I don't quite understand you and your story, but I'm willing to get to know you and your story. When I feel hurt or threatened, I'm not measuring you by the sum total of your actions toward me, but I measure your actions by the sum total of Christ's actions towards me, which means we move towards people. And again, I'm not saying that this isn't difficult or frustrating or confusing at times. And we're not alone in this. The Corinthians struggled with this too. Because see, here's the scene. They gathered together, cultural backgrounds, wealthy, poor, all from different aspects of life. And they were getting together. And essentially what was happening is as they would sing and they would eat, as they would meet in homes, That people would actually show up early, they would get drunk, they would eat all the food, and forget for others. They they, they would do it in advance because they were concerned about themselves. They were so worried about, well, what if I don't have enough? What if I don't get some? That they would overeat, that they would get drunk. That when they got together, they could only think about, what do I get out of this Experience. What do I get out of this time together? Because it was supposed to be a time together that people would stand up and share and sing and that they would remind each other of God's love for them. But they were so overcome with selfishness that they were purveying faulty attachments instead of eternal attachments. In essence, they were too concerned about ensuring that they had enough that the selfless That there was so much selfishness there that they would consume all they could and leave others out. And the Christian community that God was forming in Corinth was being undermined. Said another way, they were being praised that they were gathering but failed to be God's newly formed people when they assembled. Because their divisions show they really don't believe that they are one in Christ. Showing up early, staying late, consuming, both overeating and getting drunk. They were content to segregate the meal into different parts of the home or better positions at the table. And the Corinthians should be able to look around and go, We are purveying the same divisions. Or that what was happening is they were purveying the same divisions the world does. Those Corinthians who had the wealth, they were settling for, oh, we're just better off. That's just kind of the way the world works. So we're content to eat more and have more. Life's just dealt people a different hand. Instead of purveying the reality that Jesus came and died for all, so all people have equal access to God, so that when they showed up, how they even ate a meal together communicated that. This equality is supposed to show up when you gather, especially when they were taking communion. But they had been abusing the Lord Himself by not properly remembering Him, instead, resulting in the divisions, in the distractions, taking in division. What Paul is saying is, You have failed. To live that new humanity. You have failed to be the community. You have an idealized version of community. But then your actions, your behavior do not communicate that. You actually believe that you are one in Christ. And so what Paul does. As he says, let's take something as simple as the Lord's Supper. The time that was supposed to. Again, they met in homes. They met. They ate together. And a part of that meal together was they would take some juice and some bread and remember Jesus' sacrifice. And so what Paul does is he says, you are misusing this, you are mismanaging it, you are purveying these faulty things. And so Paul writes to the church, and this is what he says. Therefore, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper For at the meal, one each eats his own supper ahead of the other. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul reminds the church that when they gather of the important place of communion or the Lord's Supper. See, they are in fact standing in a long line of a bigger story. The story when Jesus provides this on the night that he was betrayed and he does this act with his closest friends and disciples. He, he takes advantage of a story prior to that of the Passover when God had rescued the people out of Egypt. And it's telling this story once again of how God will rescue his people and how God has sent a rescuer in Jesus to rescue us from our sin, to provide access to God, but not just to provide that rescue, but to show us what it's like to truly live, what other sinfulness truly looks like. And so Paul retells the institution of the Lord's Supper before Jesus was led to the cross. And if we aren't careful The words, do in remembrance of me, can become repetitive and lose their meaning. Jesus took, he gave thanks, broke it, and gave. Jesus is the great reversal for us. Adam and Eve saw the fruit in the garden, took the fruit, and ate unto themselves. And each and every day, we are in danger of doing the same thing. We see something with our eye. We see something with our heart. Desire it. Think that it is better. That it is more satisfying and more fulfilling. And we take it unto ourselves and say, this is what will give me what I want and what I need. This will be the answer to the longing of my heart. This will... Provide satisfaction for my soul. This will give me the control I desire. This will give me enough power to sustain myself. This will give me the approval of others. But in this moment, Jesus provides the great reversal. Rather than seek those things for himself, rather in the moment who has all authority and power, has all control in the world, takes something as simple as bread and juice and says, this is representative of me. I take I bless, I break, and I give for you. See, the love of Christ is to be given away freely. Jesus gives up his life for us. And when life gets tough, when we are surrounded by people in chaos, we can often wonder is there any for me? where we look to get, where we look to consume, where we look to jockey out our place, we overeat, we overdrink, we hedge our bets, we protect ourselves, we tell lies in our minds to protect us from relationships because we forget that Jesus gave his life for us so that we can give our lives for others. The way we live must be in accordance and in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Our thoughts and beliefs can be in contrast or even opposition to our patterns of behavior. Instead, we get pulled into a way of life. Theologian James uh, K.A. Smith notes that these types of things, rituals, habits, have the power to shape us. Not by convincing the intellect, but by allure. And this is a key insight. We can wish and desire to not sin, to have renewal. Yet we do so with divided hearts. Thus living out patterns of worship that undermine the very renewal that we ascribe to. We can affirm God's plan and His purposes with our words, intentions, and belief. We can sing worship songs with all our hearts in church. But our life patterns can lead us to a very different end. Trending us away from renewal. Paul does not give some exhaustive how to remember, but to remember. To know that Jesus' life was laid down for us. Rather that when you do it, when you take some juice and some bread, that the attitude in which you do it clearly matters. And if we do not have something tangible like bread and juice, to awaken us from our stupor, to shock us back into reality, then we can find ourselves dangerously adrift, being pulled by whatever the flow of life takes us, being shaped in ways that we would not want to be shaped. See, therefore, communion is more than something we do. Communion is a person we remember. We are to remember Jesus together. It is a community it is union of community with Christ, attachment to God through Jesus. And the early Christians constantly reminded themselves that even though Jesus was crucif- crucified by the empire, he was nonetheless handed over to the Romans by one of their own. A poignant reminder indeed at the table where the Lord's people experienced a new forgiveness and life to remember that it is us by our own actions, by our own selfishness, by our unwillingness to live lives shaped by Christ, even when we want to, when our habits and behaviors do not reinforce and back that up, that we again are crucifying Christ, that we say, Jesus, do it your will, your way, I want no part. But communion can shake us back into reality. To awaken us from our stupor. To say that we should live, that we should make conscious choices, that we should respond out of God's love first for us. See, communion helps us become who we are who God sees we are, that we are restored people with him. He helps us remember who we are, that we are made new. We are a new people, that we are not the sum total of our past fears and mistakes. We're not the sum total of our sin and shame and guilt. That communion reminds us that we are indeed a new family together and individually. We have a collective identity. The Old Testament writes that God's laws will be given To his people written on their heart that the heart of stone will be changed to a heart of flesh. That God's laws will be written on their hearts and that people will be able to live and respond in connection with God. So when Paul says there is a new covenant, we live in that new reality together with others. You don't have to personally remember that and feel guilty that, man, why did I forget? Why did I remember? That's why we gather together. And collectively, we respond and take communion so that we can remind each other that we are in this together, that we are a new family, and that when one of us falls or fails, that there are others to help pick us up, not because we are better or more stronger or more knowledgeable or wise, but because they are simply responding to Jesus where they find themselves and helping that brother or sister live the way of Jesus. And without a collective who are personally learning to practice the love that Christ has shown us, then change won't happen. See, your own willpower will be insufficient to prevent from acting, from you acting in non-Christian ways. That the, there's a gut level response that happens faster than conscious thought. It's the, We have reflexes, reactions to distress. For example, if I lash out in anger, the, the effective strategy to change in this is that the... That the flaw in my character is not to try harder the next time it happens. Instead, I must focus on changing my instantaneous reflex reactions when under distress. Again, this is not to be done by willpower. We define character as embedded automatic responses to our relational environment, our instantaneous behavior that flows naturally from our heart. Changing our faster than conscious behavior sounds strange to Western ears. We emphasize the importance of willpower. Just do harder. Just do more. Know the right information. But a typical modern strategy to correct that flaw in our character is always to try harder. But when we understand how God designed our brains, we can see that willpower is too far downstream to directly influence our reflex reactions. Our willpower is good at cleaning up when we make a mess. We can apologize. We can reconcile the relationship. Willpower also helps us create strategies that will indirectly change our instantaneous reactions in the future. This is where we must engage our willpower indirectly. But direct willpower has little effect on our character. Group identity has the power to change character because it operates in the fast track on the right spot of the brain. Our automatic responses to distress, faster than conscious thought, can be trained by our group identity we are a new family in Christ we are children of God we are in this together and let me say this again because it sounds so countercultural because we so want to define our life by our, how we see ourselves rather than who God sees us and God sees us as both individual and collective so our instantaneous reactions to life circumstances some of which result in non-Christian behavior, can be transformed by having a joyful, attached community that has a well-developed, grouped identity based in the character of Jesus. See, communion, why we take communion as a response together is to collectively say we are all responding to Jesus together. That as we look at our own lives, Paul says, examine yourself. Take account for your own stuff. And, and he's not saying, like, you're going to be unworthy to step to the table because of your sin. He's like, no, precisely because you've sinned, precisely because you've messed up, that you're able to approach this family, that you're in this family, you're able to approach this table together. That the bread and the juice, remember Jesus' body and his blood, sacrifice to you because we are in this together, that we are a new family together. And we can... Be inspired and called to act in accordance with family values. It's calling us up and calling us out, not shaming, saying, how dare you for stepping out of line but saying this is the type of family that we are. We reflect and we live the way of Jesus, giving up of ourselves for others. And so when we act in selfish and self-sabotaging ways, what we are doing is we are stepping out of alignment with the family code. And communion is an opportunity for us to jumpstart our hearts and our minds, to reorient our whole family together, that we are to be the people of Jesus that our why is because of Jesus. Why do we do Thanksgiving baskets? Why do we do game nights? Why do we do things like that? It's not because we're just a good social club that likes to have fun together. We do it because we want to live love that we want to give up of ourselves for others in real and tangible ways. We are willing to sacrifice time and energy for another so that they might have the hope of Jesus, that they can experience the renewal, that when they feel guilty or shame, when, when sin and death is crouching at the door, when that's a very real reality in your life, that the end, that death and pain does not have the final say. So together, when we examine ourselves, when we take stock, when we reflect on that, we're able to be like, it's okay to see weakness. It's okay to go, I don't have enough, and not beat ourselves up for it because we don't have enough, but to see Christ as the strength. So when we examine ourselves, we must remember the point of the meal, and we should not be anxious about whether or not we're good enough to take a piece of bread or juice, Or what do we have to do to be good enough to take that? Paul is not saying there is a long list of things to do, but he's saying when you do, recognize that you step in part of a new story, of a continuous story, one that has invited you to be a part of a family and experience also personal renewal. One of the reasons... I get asked all the time, Kyle. Why don't you like pass the plates of communion? Why doesn't you just pass and everyone take a little bread and a juice? One of the reasons that we don't do that here at Generations Church is because we want to give everyone an opportunity to personally choose to reflect on their connection with God through Jesus. But we also, in doing that, I don't want people to just get into a habit of like get going by and like take it, take a little shot, and like go on because it becomes automatic habitual ritual and just go on. I want people to choose to step up and say, I'm choosing to reflect on my relationship with God. And not only on my relationship with God, I'm choosing to also reflect on my relationship with others in the church. Because it's a communal meal. Which means before you stand up and you take and move, you should reflect. Paul says in another passage of scripture, you need to reflect, do you have any wrongs that need to be righted? Do you need to step out and go ask for forgiveness? Do you need to step out and say, man, I said a comment the other day, and I did not mean it that way. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It gives us an opportunity to not just make it an automatic response where it's all that we're at church, we're at Generations, it's the fourth song, so let's take the shot and go. No, we're able to stand up and say... I choose Jesus, and I choose his church, and I will do this together with others. That is why we respond in that way. And so I know it's a little bit different. You're like, I'm not sure if i got to shuffle out the chair to, like, to, to, to go get it. But I would rather you embrace that little bit of awkwardness so that you can have the opportunity to say, I'm consciously choosing Jesus again today. And maybe that awakens you from your stupor, awakens you from your slumber, because we can get so caught up in ourselves. And we need that. The band's going to come forward and lead us in a few songs. And over the course of songs, we're going to provide you with that opportunity to respond. To say yes to Jesus once again through the taking of communion. And Paul's solution For the Corinthians, as they've mismanaged this Lord's Supper, as they have mismanaged and and mishandled, that they've segmented, that they've divided, is that they should wait, that they should eat together, that they should remember Jesus together. And Paul's like, hey, I got more to say, but I'm going to come to you in person and, and have that conversation. But at the end of the day, communion breaks down walls because the church is not divided, it is to be united Communion is something that the church across the world does when it gathers together. That it celebrates and reminds. So John will come up after this next song and then guide us through communion. Say, hey, this is an opportunity to respond. And I would encourage you to take a moment. Maybe it's husbands and wives, you take a moment and just pray, or, or, or spouses, you take a moment to, to pray with each other and reflect on your, your connection with Jesus. Maybe it's an opportunity where we got some kids in the back. Maybe, maybe you need to teach your kids about the life, death, and resurrection in Jesus. The reason we, we sing songs and move and respond collectively is another reason is so that you can do that together with them. Yeah. That maybe you can ask for forgiveness. Maybe you're feeling tired and distraught and before you can go say yes to Jesus, God puts the Holy Spirit in your life and just says, hey, go pray with so-and-so. Amen. Go wrap your arms around them, encourage them, and go take it together. Yeah. See, this doesn't just have to be something where you do alone or isolated, but it's something we can do together, responding to Jesus, remembering that death and pain and suffering don't have the final say. What awaits you at work on Wednesday or Monday what, what awaits you at home doesn't have the final say, but yeah. Jesus does have the final say, and we can live the bigger story in our lives.